Before I start off my sermon this morning, um, I thought I'd better um, introduce myself. Uh, my name is Lee, uh, Lee Gilbert, and uh, currently I am one of the chaplains at the Queen Elizabeth Hospital in Kingsley, um, which is uh, an acute hospital. Um, it's got 440 beds, three and a half thousand staff, and for that hospital, there is myself, um, my boss, Stella, um, who is an Anglican vicar. And there's also a guy called Mark, and um, he works two days a week for us. He's a Quaker. And, and we cover the whole of the hospital. Um, and we try and see as, as many people as we can. And we cover patients and staff and visitors. Um, and so please, just before I start, please pray for your chaplains. Be closer to home for yourself um, at the end and then. You know, it's a hard job. It's a hard job, especially recently. Um, I worship at uh, Cornerstone, Kingsley Baptist Church, where for my sins, which must be many, I am the church secretary. So formally and in a sort of completely old fashioned way, I bring greetings from my church to yours. But before I became a, a hospital chaplain, I was a Baptist minister, and actually, in terms of being called to be a minister, I did receive a, a literal voice from God asking me to become a minister, um, and I received that voice in Norwich, actually at Deerham Road Baptist Church on one Sunday morning when uh, one of the ministers, Neil Walker, was preaching. And so some of you who used to go to that church many moons ago may vaguely remember me. But I also recognise that there will be an awful lot of people listening and watching this who have no idea who I am. And that's fair enough. And so before I start going down Nostalgia Avenue via Reminiscence Road, um, we're going to have our Bible reading for this morning. And I believe that someone is going to read it out for me but it's Mark 14, verses 27 to 52. You will all, Jesus predicts Peter's denial. <clears throat> you will all fall away, Jesus told them, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. Truly I tell you, Jesus answered, today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And the others said the same. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took, he took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that, if possible, the hour might pass before him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. 
Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once more, he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Enough, the hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go, here comes my betrayer. Just as he was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, appeared with, appeared. with him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and teachers of the law and the elders. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. Going at once to Jesus, Jesus G Judas said, Rabbi, and kissed him. The men seized Jesus and arrested him. Then one of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Am I leading a rebellion, Jesus? Uh, am I leading a rebellion, said Jesus, that you have to come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you, teaching in the temple courts, and you did not arrest me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then everyone deserted him and fled. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. Often um, when I um, start off my sermons, I often start them with a, with a quick quiz, just to get your brains going uh, a little bit. And this morning is no exception. And this is a quick quiz about fear, what people are sometimes frightened of. And um, what's going what I'm going to do is I'm going to um, read out some phobias, some phobias that you, you yourselves may uh, struggle with, or perhaps you might know um, some other people who, who struggle with. I'm going to read out their names, and just where you are as you're listening to this, um, just have a think, what do those phobias mean? Okay, what do those phobias mean? Have a guess. There's no prizes or anything. Okay, I'm just going to read out the words um, and then I'll give you the answers straight away. So the first one is really simple because a lot of people struggle with this. And the first one is arachnophobia, arachnophobia, which I'm sure most of you know is actually a fear of spiders, fear of spiders. But there's also um, other phobias. There's aerophobia, um, aero, um, A-E-R-O, um, and that is a fear of aeroplanes. I don't know whether you struggle with that. A lot of people struggle with agoraphobia, agoraphobia, um, which again, many of you know, is a fear of open spaces, fear of open spaces. What about this one? Acrophobia. Acro. A-C-R-O phobia. What's that one? Um, a lot of people do struggle with this 
but they know it by a different name. You might know it by vertigo, because actually, strictly speaking, it is the fear of heights, fear of heights. Uh, another one that, um, especially children um, and um, sometimes animals struggle with is um, brontophobia, brontophobia, B-R-O-N-T-O, and that is a fear of thunder and lightning. Okay. Um, another one you may be more familiar with um, is claustrophobia. Um, and uh, a lot of people know what that one is because that is the fear of confined spaces. How about cynophobia? C-Y-N-O phobia. What's that one? Well, that is the fear of dogs. Fear of dogs, cyno. Um, this next one is one that I personally struggle with, right? A lot. And that is odontophobia. Odontophobia. You might be able to guess that by that first bit of the word, odonto, because that is fear of dentists. Fear of dentists. How about monophobia? Monophobia. M-O-N-O. -O. What do you think that one is? Well, that's the fear of being alone. And then finally, and I think one that we as Christians struggle with a lot is a tichophobia, A-T-I-C-H-Y, a phobia, a tichophobia, which is the fear of letting people down. And it's really those last two that seem most applicable to our Bible passage uh, this morning. The fear of being alone uh, being alone when you are most vulnerable and the fear of letting people down and it seems to me at least that those fears have been heightened during lockdown and that whether you've been shielding or not whether you are on furlough or going on to the latest um, scheme by the government uh, to pay some of your wages or not i would think that all of us at least partially worry about those sorts of things and in our passage today, those two worries are addressed by Jesus and by others in the passage. And that's what we're going to be concentrating on this morning. There are other fears in the Bible passage that are there, such as gymnophobia, which is the fear of being naked. And although I might refer to it later on as a sort of little aside, it's not a major consideration, despite the last couple of verses of our passage talking about nakedness. And within the passage, there's also thanetophobia, which is the fear of violence. But again, I will only obliquely refer to it. But in terms of the passage as a whole, in terms of the context of the passage for us in the 21st century, just, just think for a second. Just think. What do you do when the strong person in your life becomes weak? Or perhaps when authority figures in general seemingly have no answers to what is happening. What do you do? Children might face this when the parent on whom they have relied on for everything is suddenly struck down with illness or grief. Colleagues uh, working 
uh, on projects are thrown into confusion if uh, the team leader suddenly loses confidence. Perhaps for you, and I think we've seen a lot of this recently, what do you do if what you thought was normal is suddenly turned upside down? A church, for example, can and is dismayed if the minister suddenly loses faith, suddenly loses hope, suddenly loses integrity. I don't think there's a, an official term for it, but you know what I mean? The person, the thing, who is your rock, your support, suddenly you see the flaws in them. What do you do? What do you then rely on? And I think the disciples must have felt like that as they suddenly went into the Garden of Gethsemane. Because in this passage, we see a sudden change in Jesus' attitude towards his disciples. And even more than normal, they must have wondered what was going on. And perhaps they were a little bit afraid. Until now, you see in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus had been in control. Yes, not always making complete sense to the disciples, but as a disciple and as a reader of the Gospel, you know that Jesus knew what he was doing. He knew what he was planning. He knew it was directing, teaching, guiding. He'd always been ready with, with a word or an action. Now, though, in this passage, he is, as we say, falling apart and warning the disciples that they're going to collapse around him. And the thing about fear, the thing about this passage is that fear is real. The passage itself speaks into our hearts and speaks into our souls and recognises that all of us, all of us have fears. All of us have doubts and there's nothing wrong in that. Faith and faith in Jesus isn't always built on certainties. Sometimes it's based on doubts, on what could be. And that's actually more sensible than basing your faith on a fixed idea of doctrine on belief in an individual or church or way of doing things, because those things are man-made. But if we have a faith in God or in Jesus, we know that both God and Jesus are infinite. We know that they are multifaceted and therefore we continue to grow. But if you have a fixed idea as to what church should be and do, then you limit God and you limit Jesus and you limit the Holy Spirit. Jesus, even in the Garden of Gethsemane, put his absolute and utter trust in God, in his Father. And even when Jesus didn't get an answer, he still had faith. He had faith that God knew what he was doing because he had a real and proper relationship with him. Faith in Jesus, in my experience, only becomes real when the chips are down. Don't get me wrong. Faith when things are good is also a, a very important part of faith and shouldn't be uh, sort of dismissed. And when things are going well, you know, it's not like we should ever look for the bad in the world. But bad things do happen to good people. That is our reality. And this passage demonstrates that and demonstrates more importantly that Jesus has gone through something, gone through and made it to the other side. And so if you are fearful, if you are fearful at the moment, then please, please put your trust in the only person who has conquered death, in a person who has conquered fear, 
and a person who has conquered that fear of being alone. Three times in our passage, Jesus asks his friends, Peter, James and John, to keep watch. And each time he prays the same prayer. And when the chips are down and when we're frightened, it's worth examining that prayer. Father God starts with. And know that it is Father. Abba in other translations, uh, sometimes described as Daddy. But actually it's a combination of Dad, Father and Daddy. Intimate, yes, but serious. Childlike in terms of faith, but an equal relationship as well. When it comes to prayer, remember that as you begin your prayers with perhaps Father God, if that's how you begin your prayers. Remember the privilege of praying in that intimate and yet serious way. He then goes on to say that everything is possible for you. A real statement of faith, if, if ever I've heard one. A statement that says, you know what? I know you can do anything. Again, remind yourself of that as you pray. Can, God can and does do anything. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Again, although Jesus really doesn't want to go through the agony of his trial and the cross, by being abandoned by everyone, including God himself, still his first thought is, not my will, but yours. And I put my trust in you, for you know what you're doing. How many of us can pray the same thing? When we're in, at the end of our tether, how many of us can pray an honest prayer like that, but also a faithful one as well? I don't know whether I could. And as I said three times, Jesus asks his friends to keep watch. He prays that prayer and then he goes back to his disciples to find them, of all things, asleep. Some friends they are. And I don't think it's any coincidence that Jesus prays that Abba prayer three times. As he does echo the three times that Peter denies him. But before we talk about the second of the fears that are highlighted in this passage, that of letting people down, just note for a second that although Jesus prays a, a heartfelt prayer, still the answer is actually no. And to be honest, that gives me a bit of hope. In that if God can and does say no to Jesus, his one and only son, then it's no surprise that he can say no to me, to you and me. There are times when we pray and really feel that God should say yes, because it's good for you good for other people it's good for God himself but still he says no not not yet or in the fullness of time or he answers in some mysterious yet unfathomable way like for example when a loved one is prayed for and someone says something really twee like yes they, well they are healed um, but, but they're healed in a, in a spiritual way you don't want that. You don't want God to actually physically heal them. And so he has said, no. He says no in a gentle, loving, kind and gracious way. Not in a sort of dismissive, contemptuous way. And he doesn't mind and he actually likes it when we keep on praying to him. 
And there are times when God seems to change his mind. But there are also times when God says no. As I said, if even Jesus received that answer to one of his most heartfelt prayers, we should not be surprised if it's that way for us too. And the thing is, is that when we face our fears, whether it be abandonment, as Jesus has to face, whether it be heights or depths or spiders or flying or dogs or dentists or going to the shops, venturing outside your door for the first time in a long time or whatever it is, take the example of Jesus. For after Jesus faces up to his fears and asks God to take them away, he then emerges composed and in charge once more, ready to face whatever is coming his way. And whilst I recognise that none of us are Jesus, fear, realistic fear, should not be hidden away and should be confronted. But it shouldn't cripple us. And I know from personal experience that that is easier said than done. And more often than not, we need the support and help of friends and family, or sometimes experts who help us to confront our fears. But as President Roosevelt once famously said, sometimes we have nothing to fear, but fear itself. What amazes me about this whole passage, and it happens a lot in hospitals with patients who are fearful, but sometimes when we are fearful, Sometimes we lash out. We lash out unexpectedly and without thought. Yeah, we, we lash out uh, against people who we love. And sometimes it must be said that we don't even know that well. And I think that's probably what happened when, as it says in verse 47, then one of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. That strikes me as someone who is frightened and someone who's worried, who literally lashes out. Often we lash out with our tongues, but again, that can often be a symptom of being frightened. But what amazes me is that Jesus, despite being fearful himself, despite getting the no answer from God, he seemingly is not now fearful. He shows love, he shows compassion. And again, I would ask, do we do the same? When we're frightened, when we're fearful, do we follow the example of our Lord or do we lash out? Or do we, as it continues on to say, do we flee away? And although it must be said that that is probably a better response than the young man at the end of the passage, who, who seems to have some sort of wardrobe malfunction and it's thought that actually that young man is Mark himself the writer of the gospel. And that the reason why, unlike in John's gospel, where Peter is explicitly mentioned as the one who brandishes a sword and cuts the, the ear off of the, of the servant, Mark is Peter's mate and doesn't want him to be associated with such an episode. Even saying things like one of those standing near rather than the disciple. As I said at the beginning of the sermon, it's, it's an interesting little fact, but not that important in the grand scheme of things. 
But when we examine such a passage as this, whilst rightly so, we place Jesus front and centre, we compare Jesus' reactions to those around him, to those who said they were his friends. Now, you could say, well, to be honest, those disciples, they display a more natural reaction. They, as I said, they lash out, they flee, they fall asleep. And let's face it, all of it, all of us, and I include myself in this, we've wanted to fall asleep in the middle of a prayer, in the middle of a prayer meeting um, or service or, or sermon. And on occasion, even if I'm delivering it myself. But all of us have let Jesus down. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. As it says in Romans, I have, you have. We've all done one of those three things. We may not have physically fallen asleep. But I can bet that we've all hoped that Jesus would go away. We may not have brandished a sword. We've all said things that we regret. We may no longer have the physical capabilities of running away and fleeing. We've all quietly and without comment withdrawn when, to be honest, we think to ourselves, it's just easier that way. We've all lived with guilt. Not daft. We might not have denied Jesus three times before a cock crows. But we've all regretted what we've done. It's, and it's how we deal with that guilt. And it's how Jesus deals with that guilt. That is the most important thing. And actually, the most important thing to say about guilt is that Jesus doesn't want it. Doesn't desire, desire it. Doesn't make him happy. And actually, he wants to forgive. He forgave Peter. He forgave the disciples, he forgave the two criminals. He forgave the Roman soldiers, he forgave the high priest. He forgave Pilate, he forgave the Pharisees, he forgives. Never ever forget that. Never ever think that you are beyond redemption, for you're not, no one is. Yes, just like the prodigal son, there are times when we must identify what it is that you feel guilty about. A general feeling of guilt doesn't do anyone any good. Yes, we must all accept responsibility for our actions and our words. No one expects us to be faultless, but taking responsibility means that we are admitting first and foremost that we, are, we were in the wrong. It's why in the story of the prodigal son, the young man says, in effect, I did this. I messed up. Yes, it's good to make amends where appropriate. Sometimes our actions do speak louder than our words. And sometimes we have to make the first step. But once that's done, and that is no small step, I grant you, but once that's been done, then it's time to receive Jesus' forgiveness. Accept it and then move on. And it has to be said that sometimes the hardest part of letting go of guilt lies in forgiving ourselves. And there can be all sorts of different reasons for that. Perhaps we feel embarrassed about our behaviour and how people still view it. 
Perhaps we are aware of the continuing pain we caused another person. Perhaps we feel that we need to be punished further. But refusing to forgive yourself is really a potential threat to our mental, our physical and our spiritual well-being. Unforgiveness of any sort requires a lot of energy. We are constantly chewed up and that energy deserves to be put to better use so that our creativity, um, our abilities, our relationships are fed, not our fears. God and Jesus don't want that. They want the best for you. And guilt for me, at least, is a vicious circle where we know we've let somebody or God himself down and then we go round in a circle thinking to ourselves, I don't know what to do. And then we feel we've let God down again. If that's for you, then <clears throat> think to yourself for just a second. Maybe it's time for you to confess. Maybe it's time to ask for forgiveness. The best way of dealing with fear, especially fear that you've let someone down, is to say to Jesus, please forgive me. And know and know that he will. So there you have it. This triple scene of the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus predicts Peter's denial. We have the three times repeated Abba prayer by Jesus. Uh, and then finally, Jesus is arrested. But this scene, this passage, invites us all to stop and ponder once more and figure out where do we belong in it? And don't worry about the author of you know, Mark placing himself in the story. I'm not going to ask you to become naked or anything. No. But please place yourself in this story, especially when it comes to fear. And ask yourself some questions, perhaps. For are you like the disciples, full of bluster one minute, sleep the next, and then finish off with a nice dose of shame? Are you ready to portray Jesus if it suits your other plans? Or like for Judas, if it fails to live up to your expectations? Or are you prepared to face up to your fears? To keep watch with him in the garden, sharing his anguished prayer? Fortunately for us, we are not called to repeat his unique moments of suffering. Jesus went through that alone on behalf of us all. But as Christian writers from the very beginning, for example, the Paul have seen, it is part of the normal Christian experience that we too should agonise in prayer, that we will mess up, that we will make mistakes. But it's what we do without fear, those mistakes that set us apart from everyone else. For if we go to Jesus with them, if we confess and if we forgive ourselves, then I think we can rightly say that we are with Jesus in the garden. And we can promise that we will stay with him until the Father's will is done. Will you do that today? Will you stay with Jesus in his garden? And will you stay with him forevermore? I hope so. Amen.